Turn with me to Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. I, I feel a little bit more of a sense of freedom on Sunday evenings to kind of deviate from my normal plan. We're just preaching till Christ returns anyway, so I will be back in Ezra and Nehemiah in a couple of weeks. But I thought that tonight would be a good occasion, since it's been a number of years since I've done this, I'd like to address the topic of baptism. It's such a significant aspect of our faith. I think every few years it's good to review what Scripture says about this central part of Christian life and worship. And as I was going over some of the materials that I think are important to, to help me in my understanding of baptism, I just felt like I wanted to go a little deeper than maybe I have in the past. And so we're actually going to take two messages to address this. We'll begin tonight and then we'll finish up next week. And then I promise we'll get back to Ezra Nehemiah. I'm going to call this series of messages, just two of them, the spiritual significance of water baptism. And so I'd like to just start in our classic text that was referenced tonight, Matthew 28, beginning in verse 18, very end of the Gospel of Matthew. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to keep all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. At the beginning of the Great Reformation, this was when the, the true gospel of salvation by faith in Christ alone was spreading across Europe in opposition to the Roman Catholic theology of salvation by works. During this time, the issue of baptism, particularly the mode or the method of baptism, this became the hot topic of the day. This is immediately a controversy in the church. When the reformers led people from the heresy of Roman Catholicism, almost all Catholic practices were changed the few were kept, and one of them was infant baptism, paedo-baptism. The idea of baptizing only those who made a profession of faith in Christ was actually considered radical. At the beginning of the Reformation, a group emerged, though, that was nicknamed by their opponents the Anabaptists, the Rebaptizers. They believed that the Bible taught that true water baptism was only for professing believers in Christ and therefore could not be for infants. They believed that when Matthew 28.19 says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them, that the making of disciples happens first, baptism happens second. In Zurich, Switzerland, under the spiritual leadership of Ulrich Zwingli, and you have to recall during this time that the church and, and government were working hand in hand, that the city government controlled the church. That's the way it just was all over Europe. The city council felt that the Anabaptists were promoting this change too quickly. And so on January 21st, 1525, the council voted to forbid the Anabaptists from teaching believers baptism, what we did tonight. They were forbidden from doing so. It was, it was now against the law. So what did the Anabaptists do? That same evening, the Anabaptists held a massive baptism service. They baptized one another in believer's baptism. Because of this and continued insistence by the Anabaptists to practice believer's baptism, in 1526, 
Ulrich Zwingli and the Zurich City Council voted to condemn the local Anabaptists to death. And to make their point, the city council executed the Anabaptists in Zurich by drowning them. We still consider Zwingli an important part of the Reformation, but this was a terrible lapse in judgment, a terrible sin. We recall that the Reformers were sinners saved by grace, just like we are. Many of the Anabaptists fled to other parts of Europe, but they continued to be persecuted both by Catholics and Protestants alike. Many of them died for their belief. In fact, in 1566, in the Netherlands, there was a mass execution in which 3,000 Anabaptist believers were executed. So the issue of water baptism isn't just a, 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 a theological discussion. I was about to say a dry theological discussion, but you would have thought I was trying to make a joke. Lives have been lost over this issue. Thousands of lives. Now, in our culture today, we probably won't face that type of intense need to take a side, but we face a different challenge. We face, first of all, the challenge of indifference toward baptism. I, I've, I've found that in my uh, quarter century of, ba- of pastoral ministry. Christians just think that baptism is something you pray about. I've had so many people say, I'll pray about being baptized. You don't pray about obeying God. You just do it. There's an indifference toward baptism. Our position in our church is if you won't be baptized, you're not a believer. Because you won't obey Christ in the simplest of things. How how could we expect you would obey Him in the most difficult things if you won't obey Him in a, a command to get in some water for five minutes and declare your loyalty to Christ? And so it is a a challenge because of indifference. There's another challenge today, which I'm going to spend most of our time on tonight, and that is we are going back to a debate over the mode or the method of baptism. And it's not just the amount of water being used at stake here. It's not just that we we don't accept baptism uh, by squirt gun, but we will accept it in the big bathtub. Because there are theological implications tied to the mode of baptism that we'll talk about. And that is becoming a bigger issue. And so I'd like to be as clear and as organized as possible. I want to do this in five parts. We'll do two of them tonight. The first part, we'll go through the basics of baptism. The second part, we'll look at the participants in baptism. That'll take us through the end of tonight. Next Sunday evening, we're going to look at the method of baptism. We'll look at the purposes of baptism. And then we'll finish up with a special topic, children and baptism. How do we view that? And so we'll do the first two tonight, the basics of baptism and the participants in baptism. So first, the basics of baptism. I want to start with a simple definition. It's a little long. I'm going to repeat it for you a couple of times. But here's our definition of baptism. Baptism is a post-salvation act of faith and public testimony. Baptism is a post-salvation act of faith and public testimony that you have been united with Christ in His death and resurrection, and intend to follow and obey Him. I'll repeat this a couple of times. Baptism is a post-salvation act of faith and public testimony that you have been united with Christ in His death and resurrection and intend to follow and obey Him. One more time. Baptism is a post-salvation act of faith and public testimony that you have been united with Christ in His death and resurrection and intend to follow and obey Him. Now, to help us get a spiritual foundation, a starting point, turn with me to Romans 6. 
for just a moment. And I know that Darren read this passage just a few minutes ago, and that was by design. Romans chapter 6 is going to talk about baptism, but it's not talking about water baptism. It's using the broader metaphorical use of baptize to simply mean to be completely plunged. That's what the word baptize means, to be immersed, plunged into a new state of being. Water baptism is the outward manifestation, the outward demonstration of the inward reality, the internal reality that's already happened. And that's the reality that Paul is describing here in Romans 6. Romans 6, beginning in verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? There's the death theme. Or do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? Therefore we were buried with Him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with Him in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with Him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For He who has died has been justified from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe we shall also live with Him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again, death is no longer no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Do you see this theme? Dead, 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 dead. Alive, 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 alive. That's what being baptized into Christ is all about. You died with him and you're raised with him. And so being immersed in Christ is simply Christ gave us this glorious picture of being immersed in Christ, of dying with Him, going down into the grave and coming up alive with Him to forever be alive with Him. And so the baptism that Paul is speaking of here is the the intimate and close identification with Christ in both His death and His resurrection. To be baptized, to be immersed to be absorbed into something or into someone is to have complete association with that thing or that person. And so baptism is a post-salvation act of faith and public testimony that you have been united with Christ in His death and resurrection and intend to follow and obey Him. Now just a side note here, you might ask then what was the baptism that John the Baptist performed? He baptized so many that that's where he got his nickname, John the Baptizer or John the Baptist. He wasn't called John the Baptist because he went to a Baptist church. He was called John the Baptist because he baptized people. So what was his baptism? The baptism of John was not the believer's baptism of the church of Jesus Christ that we just practiced this evening. This was a precursor and it served a different purpose. And you have to understand the background to, to get John's baptism. And the background has to do with Gentiles. If a Gentile wanted to become a Jew, he had to do three things. First, if he was a male, he had to be circumcised. Second, he had to publicly baptize himself in front of religious officials. He had to say, I'm immersing myself in the true faith in the true and living God. And third, he had to declare his loyalty to God and to the law of Moses. 
Very similar to what we did tonight. But John the Baptist was doing something unprecedented. He was calling Jews to be baptized as if they were filthy Gentiles. Why? He only baptized those who expressed repentance of sin. It had to be accompanied by repentance, by a genuine heartfelt sorrow over sin. And how do we know this? He refused to baptize the Pharisees. The Pharisees came and he said, no, you won't come into the waters of baptism because you won't repent. In other words, baptism, even with John, was what we call being fenced. It was guarded. It, it had stipulations. It had conditions. And the purpose of John's baptism was to prepare Israel for the coming of the Messiah, to exhort them to humble their hearts because the King was coming. The Lamb of God was coming. John one twenty seven. John said, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. What would you do if you knew that the Lord Jesus Christ was walking through this door in five or ten minutes? You would prepare yourself. You would prepare your heart. He is the sovereign King of the universe. He knows everything. I need to cleanse my mind. I need to repent of sin. And that's what John's baptism was. It was preparation. And so John's baptism was not Christian baptism. It was a preparation for the coming of Christ. Now, in understanding the basics of water baptism, we have to eliminate two things water baptism is not. First, it is not proof of salvation. It's not proof of salvation. Traditional evangelicalism often boasts of how many baptisms were performed in a given month or a given year because water baptism is seen as proof of salvation. That somehow, if we've baptized 100 people, 100 people were saved. This is very dangerous because rather than looking at the continued fruit of salvation in the life of the professing believer, many simply point back to that experience as proof that they're right with God. I was baptized, therefore I'm okay with God. That's never been the purpose of baptism, to serve as some sort of delineation or proof that I am saved. I have personally baptized people. I have personally listened to their testimonies and personally watched them turn away from Christ at a later time. Baptism is not proof of salvation. The second thing that baptism is not, it's not only not proof of salvation, it is not an act of salvation. It's not an act of salvation. This belief is often called baptismal regeneration. And the vast majority, listen carefully, the vast majority of people who call themselves Christians in this world, I'm including Roman Catholics, many Lutherans, Greek and Russian Orthodox, the vast majority of people who call themselves Christians believe in baptismal regeneration. They believe that baptism saves you, that these five who went into the waters got saved tonight. The nature of baptism is the same for both Roman Catholics and the Orthodox traditions. It is the cleansing of sin from the baptized individual. The Coptic Orthodox Church, these are the Egyptian Orthodox churches, they openly say in their statement of faith, quote, baptism is a holy sacrament by which we are born again. This belief says that water baptism is simply an act apart from any faith. There's no faith involved. It's just an act that you perform and that's what saves you. Well, this is completely contrary to the text we read this morning. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. This belief is so heinous. It is twisted. It is perverse because it turns something beautiful Something commanded by Christ, the external, 
outward demonstration of an internally changed heart and has turned it into the means of salvation, which now just makes it nothing more than filthy rags and dead works. It's a horrible thing to do. Now, many in this erroneous and spiritually fatal belief system would point to 1 Peter 3.21, where Peter says, Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Remember, we've said that baptism is often used in the New Testament in a metaphorical sense, a larger sense. Baptism doesn't always have to have an exclusively watery context. It can simply mean to be identified with something or taken into something. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. What is it corresponding to? Well, Peter had just said that Noah was saved in the ark, that Noah was associated with, a part of, inside, immersed in, as it were, the ark, which saved him. And in the same way, we who are in Christ are saved by Him because we're in Him. I I thought it was a pretty clever illustration talking about baptism and the ark. That's more water in one sentence than you can possibly imagine. And so, baptism is not proof of salvation, nor is it an act of salvation. So let's spend the rest of our time this evening talking about now the participants in baptism. I know we're not just going through one text here and I just have to do this foundational message to help us understand and that's not our normal thing, but we do have to do this on occasion. The participants in baptism ask the question, who gets to be baptized? And literally, thousands of people have died over this question. The major debate occurs between paedo-baptists and credo-baptists. Paedo-baptists, those who believe in infant baptism, and you can hear pediatrician, Paedo-Baptists in their children, and Credo-Baptists, those who believe that a statement of belief in Christ, a creed, is necessary for salvation. I need to take a really long detour here for the sake of clarifying our position and for what I hope is a fair treatment of infant baptism, and that will be most of the rest of our time this evening. I want to clarify this issue and just kind of have this on record from our church Paedo-baptism was the position of almost every single one of the original reformers. It is the position of many great men of God in our era today. Basically, paedo-baptism says that infant children of believers should be baptized because they are what they call covenant children. I'm going to talk about that extensively in a moment. They would argue that since God's redemptive plan has continuity throughout history, In the Old Testament, God instituted the sign of circumcision to be applied to male infants. It didn't save, but it marked an individual out as part of God's covenant people. And so, paedo-baptists connect circumcision to baptism, a mark of covenant membership, marking a child out as part of God's covenant people. The concept of infant baptism from the Reformation on is rooted in the belief that the primary way the church has grown, the primary way new converts have come to Christ throughout the centuries, is through the young people who are raised in the church, the children raised in the church. Dr. Joel Beakey, the preeminent scholar on the Puritans, he wrote this, quote, Reformed Christians have acknowledged that their most solid, genuine church growth has been through the conversion of youth reared in the church, and we would agree with that. Charles Spurgeon agreed He agreed that the best converts in the church are the children and that in his estimation, 
Over his years in the ministry, the children saved in the church under the preaching of the true and biblical gospel, quote, have been more numerously genuine than any other class, more constant, and in the long run, more solid. Joel Beakey also states, quote, God ordinarily works savingly among his covenantal seed, that is, among believers. What are covenant children? said to be covenant children are said to be children born in a household of at least one professing christian they've been baptized as infants and they're being raised in the church they're under the prayers and the preaching of the church with the great hope of their eventual salvation in christ except for the baptizing them as infants part we would agree with all of that we 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 love that we pray for our children we have often prayed from this pulpit that god would save every single child who comes through our doors. Every baby born would be Christ's. Their belief in covenant children is based on several scriptures. One primarily, and I'll end with that one. There's three big ones. First of all, it's based in Genesis 17.7, which establishes the covenant relationship of God with children of God's people. God is speaking to Abraham, quote, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your seed or your children after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your seed after you. So Genesis 17.7 is one basis. Another basis for the concept of covenant children is Acts 2.39. In Acts 2.39, Peter is preaching to the Jews, listening to him, several thousand of them, on the day of Pentecost. And he said, For the promises for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to Himself. And so that's one of the verses that gives us the concept of covenant children. But the primary text for covenant children to come at that belief comes from 1 Corinthians 7.14. 1 Corinthians 7.14 says, For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband, for otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy that the children of a believing wife, even in a home where there's only one believing parent, are now holy unto the Lord. This is the key verse for the concept of covenant children, which then extends to infant baptism. And, this is important, covenant children are to be called to a life of holiness. They are called to a lifestyle set apart from the world even prior to salvation. And I have to say from anecdotal experience, and that doesn't prove anything, it just proves that that's the experience I've had, I would agree that given 100 Christian couples and 100 non-Christian couples, odds are that many more children in the Christian families will be saved. Does that prove it's because they're covenant children? doesn't prove that. That's simply a correlation. It also could be attributed to the fact, and this is how I would attribute it, that the parents in the Christian families, are presenting the gospel to their children. And that's why they're being saved. Joel Beakey says this, to be very fair, and we would agree with this, Scripture offers no guarantees for the salvation of our children. But the covenant of grace, let me stop right there, the covenant of grace is a covenant theology term that just generally means all the grace of God throughout all of Scripture. It's not a scriptural term. It's not a a biblical definition. It's a term they use. We would not necessarily hold to it. We would call the new covenant the covenant of grace. 
But he says, but the covenant of grace offers us a great deal of hope outside of ourselves in a sovereign covenant-keeping God who will not forsake the works of his own hands. We would agree that Scripture offers no guarantees for the salvation of our children and that all of our hope for the salvation of our precious ones is in God and in God alone. And I think it's very important to understand that the primary motivation, the primary heart desire that is behind infant baptism is to see the eventual salvation of that child. The the belief that baptism is one of the means of grace to move that child along to the point of actual regeneration. And because most who practice infant baptism are also Calvinists, they would stop short of saying that baptism helps in the salvation of the child, but regeneration must must also take place. We would agree with that. Those who believe infant baptism, to be as fair to them as we possibly can, they rightly warn against overestimating the value of infant baptism. In other words, while they would say that this places a child in covenant relationship with God, it's not a replacement for regeneration, it's not a replacement for conversion, certainly not a replacement for repentance later in life. They would caution against parents presuming their children are saved because of infant baptism, and that is a a correct caution. One other little note used here to build the case for infant baptism is the baptism of whole households in the book of Acts. Paedo-Baptists argue that instances in the New Testament of a person being baptized along with the household, Cornelius, Lydia, uh, the Philippian jailer, 1 Corinthians 1, we have Crispus and Stephanus. They would argue that these instances would argue for infant baptism. Now, I want to be really clear about this. Our Presbyterian brothers and sisters who hold to the idea of infant baptism and covenant children they can generally be characterized as believing the biblical gospel and having a massive desire to see people saved, to see the children of believers saved. And we would be in total lockstep with them on that. We can easily join with them. We can easily lock arms. We can easily hold hands on the issue of we all want our children to be in heaven someday. We want to see every one of them before the throne of God above. But we want to deal with what the Bible says, not what our theological system tells us that it says. And so I would respectfully offer several critiques and then we'll finish up moving on to what we call believer's baptism. I want to give you seven critiques of infant baptism and I've just given them some titles here to make it shorter for you to take notes. The first critique we'll call the high road critique. The high road critique is important Because there can be the implication that those who hold the infant baptism are more concerned for the salvation of children than those who do not. That they have really taken the high road. Some, not all, but some proponents of infant baptism would say that those who do not infant baptize or who do so without full knowledge of what they call the covenant implications are less concerned about the salvation of their children than those who do. Now, some would say, well, you're just setting up a a fake argument. Uh, Nobody in their right mind would ever say that we, as those who practice believer's baptism, are less concerned about the salvation of our children than those who practice infant baptism. Yes, they do say that. I can cite sources. I'm not going to because they're godly men, and I want you to still read them and love them. But some do say that. They They would say that we at Grace Bible Church are less concerned for the salvation of our children. First of all, that's not provable. And second of all, it's not true. 
I, I, I think the top prayer request I get from any member at Grace Bible Church is, Pastor Steve, would you pray for the salvation of my child? That child might be three and he might be 40. So that's the high road critique. Second, I would offer what I'd call the authority critique. The authority critique. I'm always suspicious of anything that can't be understood from Scripture without church authority explaining it to you. The average Christian reading the Bible is not going to come to the conclusion of infant baptism, in my view. This has to be taught through a system of theology which essentially equates Israel and the church and then makes all of Israel's promises for the church and then has to take some really daring and some pretty uh, tenuous interpretations of just a few verses and interpret that toward infant baptism. And I believe with all of my heart that the average Christian is not going to come to the conclusion of infant baptism without significant help from pastors, from theologians, from, with complex theological arguments and studies which show that the Bible might hint at infant baptism. So my, my fear, my suspicion is if something is completely and utterly a mystery to the church until a PhD theologian has to explain it to you, I'm prone to be suspicious of it. Because you see, I believe that the Bible says what it means and means what it says. And I believe in the doctrine of illumination that any Christian can pick up the Bible and come to a reasonable conclusion about large issues such as this. I believe in the plainness of Scripture. I believe in the understandability of Scripture. I do not believe that somebody who studied at Cambridge and Oxford has to be the one to come and show me these little hints and little gray areas to radically alter a view of something that Scripture, I don't believe, teaches. That's the authority critique. And and that, that is, in my view, left over from Catholicism. That the church must explain truth to you because you're too dumb to figure it out on your own by just reading your Bible. There's a third critique I would offer. I'd call this the continuity critique. The continuity critique. A large part of the view of infant baptism is based on the supposed continuity between circumcision and infant baptism. There is very little continuity. They have one thing in common. They both happen to babies. That's it. Circumcision is a very Jewish sign of the Abrahamic covenant, so much so that Jews in the New Testament are sometimes called those of the circumcision. Circumcision was part of the law of Moses, but that law expired at the cross. And so finding continuity between circumcision and, and baptism is only possible if you wanted it to be there in the first place. That's a case of starting with a belief system and foisting it upon Scripture, and that's not, uh, not safe to do spiritually. It's a fourth critique. I would call this the scriptural critique of covenant children. The scriptural critique of covenant children. There's no clear hermeneutic thread to stand on. There's no, there's no tightrope to stand on. Infant baptism is inferred. It's assumed based on walking a tightrope of evidence. That it's like walking across the Grand Canyon on a spider's web. It barely supports anything. And remember, covenant children are those children born in a household of at least one professing Christian who have been baptized as infants, being raised in the church under the prayers and the preaching of the church with the great hope of their eventual salvation in Christ. I want to return to those three major scriptures that I, I said are pointed to for the concept of covenant children. Genesis seventeen seven, God is speaking to Abraham. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your seed after you throughout your generations 
for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your seed after you. We're agreed that God is going to bless the offspring of Abraham, Israel, and the spiritual descendants of Abraham, Gentiles who believe on Christ. But this means, listen carefully, this means there are covenant children who will go to hell. By the way, those who believe in infant baptism agree with this, that there are covenant children who will not get saved and will go to hell. This is a huge, huge stretch from God's covenant with Abraham to baptizing infants. And and we can't hold to this. God is a covenant keeper. If you're in covenant with Him, then He's going to keep that covenant. And so I would be really hesitant to say any human being is in covenant with God and then going to be judged by God. That would be a big stretch. How about Acts 2.39 for the promises for you and your children and for all who are far off? This is in Peter's first, Peter's first sermon at Pentecost. This is a quote partly from Isaiah 57, which states that not only Jews will be saved by faith, but Gentiles will be as well. But it ignores the common biblical use of the term children to simply mean descendants in general. It doesn't mean babies. It doesn't mean little ones. And it ignores the distinction between the church and Israel. But that makes their theology make sense if you ignore that ex- distinction. So now... Though even ignoring that distinction, it's a huge leap to infant baptism. But the primary text for covenant children, this is the one I'm going to camp on this for a bit. I've spent a great deal of time studying this particular verse. 1 Corinthians seven fourteen. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. This is the key verse for the concept of covenant children, which then leads to the concept of infant baptism. If this sounds confusing to you, it's because it is. It is confusing. I have two major problems with this interpretation of 1 Corinthians 7.14. The first one is contextual, and the second one is logical. The contextual problem here, the context is not Paul preaching about covenant children. That's a term that's made up, by the way. It's not a biblical term. The context is helping a Christian spouse married to an unbeliever know what she's supposed to do. You remember in Corinth, you had all these people getting saved and yet their spouses weren't. And the big question to Paul was, what do I do? Do I, do I leave this man? Do I stay with him? What am I supposed to do? That's the context. And so the, the context This, the gravity and the depth of the topic of baptism and of, if you want to believe this, covenant children cannot possibly be based on one little parenthetical meaning tucked away in a verse that has nothing to do with that topic in the first place. It was talking about something different. I have noticed that when Paul wants to nail something down, he's pretty good at that. When he wants to talk about salvation by faith alone, He gives us Romans, not one little piece of a verse tucked into a topic that's not even related. That's the contextual problem. The logical problem is this, and I have to walk through this with you. First of all, what does it mean that the children are made holy? What does that mean? It it simply means that the children in the household with even one believing parent receive the spiritual impact and the benefits of that believing parent, that it's far and infinitely better for a child to be raised in the household of at least one believer than in a completely non-Christian home. That they're, they're set apart, they're, they're made holy in the sense that 
they're blessed and that they receive these benefits that all of a sudden they have a believing mama who is reading the Bible to them and taking them to church and praying with them and, and preaching the gospel to them. But beyond that, the belief in covenant children, and I'm, I'm really trying to accurately represent their view, their belief says that because 1 Corinthians 7.14 says that the child of even one believing parent is a covenant child, then that child should be baptized as an infant because of the, what they call, non-salvific covenant relationship with God. What does that mean? It means that they're in covenant relationship, but it's not a saving relationship. But that child should be baptized because they're living with the believing mother, for example. Why? Because the verse says that the children are hagias, holy, set apart. Here's the logical problem. The verse also says that the unbelieving husband is sanctified, hagias, holy, set apart. So by that logic, the unbelieving husband should be dragged to church and baptized as well, not as a believer, but like the child in hope of future salvation. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine us dragging the man in here and his testimony reads like, I don't believe in God, I don't believe in Christ, my wife made me come, and here I am. That's not a testimony. If you're going to stay consistent that you should baptize children because they live in the, in the household of a believing parent, then you need to baptize the unbelieving, unbelieving parent as well. Here's a fifth critique. We'll call this the confusion critique. And this really concerns me. The confusion critique. Covenant children are to be called to a life of holiness and a lifestyle set apart from the world even prior to salvation. I want to be very clear. I'm, I'm reading this from those who believe in infant baptism. They're to be called to a life of holiness. I would submit that an unsaved person of any age cannot live a life of holiness. But that godly parents protect children from the world and rightly so doing what Paul calls raising them in the admonition of the Lord, disciplining them, setting limits for them. But by definition, holiness pleases God, right? We would never say an unbeliever is living a holy life that is pleasing to God. We're getting on some real dangerous territory here. Of course we discipline children. Of course we set limits for them. Of course we tell them what the Bible says. Of course we encourage them to do what's right. But I would stop short of telling a child, you are a covenant child and you must live a life of holiness. That comes dangerously close to confusing the child concerning the very nature of salvation. You're going to turn them into little Pharisees if you don't keep preaching the gospel to them. And to be fair, those who believe in infant baptism say you should preach the gospel to your children. But it's confusing. In this system, children are taught that outward obedience is part of their covenantal relationship to God. Or you can put it this way. Look, mom and dad are Christians. Therefore, you are in a covenant to obey God. And yet that outward obedience falls short of their covenantal obligation. So this is very confusing. How do you explain this to a five-year-old? Here's what Dr. Beakey says. Quote, we must teach our covenant children and young people to plead with our covenant God on the basis of his promises to baptize them with the spirit of grace and to grant them regeneration, repentance, and faith. I'm all for telling children to pray to God for mercy and for regeneration. We did that with our kids. You need to pray that God would move in your heart. You need to pray that God would regenerate you. You need to pray that God would give you faith. 
But to tell them to plead on the basis of a cloudy and indistinct promise sends a message to the child that God is obligated to them in some way. Very confusing to a child. Your obedience is necessary because you're in covenant with God. Your obedience is worthless and you need to repent. That's a tough message. Instead, you raise them in the admonition of the Lord. We pray for regeneration. We tell them, we're praying for your salvation. You see how you're telling lies. You see how you stole things from your brother. You see how you're not obeying. That's because you don't have a heart to obey. You're, you need Christ. But never would I tell a child, oh, you're a, you're a covenant child because you're my child. That'll only give a sense of entitlement, which we never want to give to our children. Here's a sixth critique we'll call the presumption critique, and we're almost done here. The presumption critique. Kind of waited for this one. It's the obvious one. There's no example in the Bible of infant baptism. Not one. Now, paedo-baptists argue that instances of the new te- in the New Testament of a person being baptized along with his household, the Cornelius, Cornelius Lydia, Philippian jailer, Crispus, Stephanus, would at least imply infant baptism. But two things here. None of those texts say that the members of the household were baptized only because they were members of the household. The evidence points to household conversions leading to believers' baptism. And of course, it never says there were infants in those homes. The belief that infants were in the household is a presumption and a guess only. And it's, that's a pretty big guess to base an entire church practice on. And the seventh critique I'll call the command critique. The command critique, and we started with this in Matthew 28. Jesus was very clear in the text we read in Matthew 28. You baptize converts. You baptize believers. Go and make disciples. If infant baptism is that important in order to obey the Lord... Why is there not one single direct command anywhere in all of Scripture for believers to baptize newborn children? There's not one. And on top of that, now you're holding me accountable to supposedly obey God when in fact you can't point to a single clear command? If I'm attending the church that's baptizing babies, I have a, single, I have a simple and single question for the pastor. Would you please point me to the one verse that commands me to baptize my child? Point me to the one. And they can't. Well, you see, Genesis 17, 7, they start the whole litany and you have to have it explained to you by somebody who says they're smarter. And to me, that smells of spiritual elitism. I I don't think that's the intention whatsoever, but I think that's the effect. I think that's the effect. So what is the pattern found in Scripture? Who are the participants Those who have already experienced the new birth on the basis of their faith. They've repented. They've demonstrated active faith and obedience. Acts chapter 2, the 3,000 who came to faith on Pentecost. Acts 8, the Ethiopian who believed on Christ. Acts 9, Saul, Paul. Acts 10, Cornelius and his household. Acts 16, Lydia. Acts 16, the Philippian jailer. And so, of course, we want to fence and we want to protect baptism and we do our best to do this. How do we know that someone has experienced a new birth? I've often joked, I wish that every person had a, a light system, green for saved and red for not. It would be so easy. So how do we guard baptism? Well, primarily in two ways. We receive a testimony of conversion 
Life before and after Christ. All of the testimonies you heard tonight have been read by the elders, have been looked at and worked on with the the baptism candidates because we don't want them to be in a position of thinking they're saved because they came up with a crafty testimony. And the second way is we ask for an explanation of the gospel. It's not as likely someone is a believer in Christ if they can't articulate why they're saved. And you don't know the behind the scenes story, but there are plenty of people that we have said, no, we will not baptize you. Because you can't explain the gospel and your salvation is by works, according to your testimony. So no, we can't baptize you. That's not Christian baptism. And so the participants in baptism are those who have professed faith in Christ. They've committed to follow them, follow him. And the pattern in scripture, generally speaking, is that baptism follows after certain conversion to Christ. And we'll address that more next time. So next Sunday night, we'll cover the rest. We'll look at the method of baptism, the purpose of baptism, and then we'll do a special topic, children in baptism. Why do we have a a young man who is really a, a young adolescent being baptized tonight? We're going to explain that next week. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for this glorious evening in which we have seen the demonstration of your grace in the lives of five. We have sung the gospel. We have heard the gospel. We have been together with those whose lives have been changed by the gospel. We thank you for this glorious Lord's Day in which we have gathered together for the, the better part of the day to hear your word, to be with your people, to leave the world behind and to have at least for one-seventh of our week a little taste of heaven until that day that Christ would call to us that the trumpet would sound and we would be raised up with Christ. We look forward to that day, but until then, the Lord's Day is our, our favorite time It's our time of glorious gathering in which we think upon our Savior whom we long to see, our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.